0: Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks.
1: Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Leadership Window. I am Patrick Jinx, leadership and strategy coach and president of The Jinx Perspective. This is episode 27, and our guest today is joining us all the way from the UK. And we met here a couple of months ago online, and what a great connection. I'm so glad that we've made this connection. His name is Minter Dial. He is an international professional speaker, author, consultant. He focuses on leadership, branding, and particularly digital strategy. And his work follows a successful international career at L'Oreal. How's that for branding? How's that for a a brand name that has a little bit of success? Uh, After his career at L'Oreal, mentor basically returned to his entrepreneurial roots and, uh, Launched this thing and it just took off and he's doing more things than we probably have time to talk about or highlight on this podcast, but he's spent uh, the last decade or so helping senior leadership and management teams and boards to adapt to all the new challenges and demands of the digital world and digitally enhanced marketplace. And he has worked with world-class organizations to help activate their brand strategies and basically figure out how to best integrate new technologies, digital tools, devices, and platforms. Um, I want to make sure that we talk a good bit today about his new book because it's outstanding. It's called You Lead. You Lead. How being yourself makes you a better leader. And, and uh, Mentor, I will tell you, as I look at... Um, as I look at this work around integrating new technologies, digital tools, devices and platforms, it may or may not surprise you to know. I think you do most of your work in the corporate sector, and and our listeners probably know that I do most of my work in the social sector. And this is a really big challenge in the nonprofit sector around really figuring out and getting up to speed on digital tools, devices, and platforms, partly because, you know, the capacity is limited in a nonprofit number one to to uh, invest in the kind of capital needed, and yet more and more realizing that you know, we're we're behind, and and it's it is the world, and we've got to get in there. So, the the nonprofit sector is no exception to the challenges and the needs of thinking about that. But today, I want I want to talk about um, certainly around branding, but again through the lens of leadership. And I love s- some of your work, and already our conversations that we've had about leadership but uh so i'm really excited welcome to the show from and and i don't know what time is it there in the uk right now as we it record is, this
0: uh it's just past tea time it's <laughs> 4 p.m okay 4 time.
1: tea time and you're not talking about golf
0: no sir yeah, i don't <laughs> right. do 18 i do only 19th holes
1: okay good yeah yeah tea time uh, very good. Well, I, I just want to thank you. First of all, you reached out to me, and I really appreciate it. What a great connection, and I'm looking forward to growing our, our friendship along the way, but just really glad you're here. And, and I, I know you don't necessarily, you're not here to really promote any product or anything like that, but having now had an opportunity to get a pre-read of your new release, you lead, I certainly want to talk a good bit about that, but I want you to, I want you to go in whatever direction you want. But, um, let me just start by saying, um, uh, what would you say to let our listeners just get to get to know you a little bit and how you got to this place in your leadership journey? How 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 are you doing? What you do? Just tell
0: us a little bit about the journey and a little bit about you. All right, thank you so much for having me on the show, Patrick. I can say this that I'm 56 years old. I've changed countries 15 times. Wow! And homes 34. I have 34 different addresses to my record just the one wife, which I plan to keep as such, but for the rest, I'm kind of an agent of change. And and uh, and, and along the other things that I've crazily done, I've actually worked in 12 different industries, and uh, which ranging from trying to become a tennis pro to high-end luxury leather goods, travel agency for musicians, and a few shampoos while I was at L'Oreal. And so the, the, the consequence of all that is I've seen a lot of things. I've done a lot of things, but I'm good at really nothing.
1: Yeah. did now Did you say you were 56 or 156?
0: <laughs> some days I feel like the, uh, a little older, but five, six is what it is. <laughs>
1: that, that's an amazing life. And I know you have some ties here to South Carolina. Where I, where I am i do case, oh well that's the, that was, was the beautiful a
0: beautiful reason for connecting i mean i so I, i've really no idea who i am at some level in terms of because i come from so many places and that always everyone needs to put a label on me where where do you come from Well, i was born in one country raised in another educated in another with parents from another with a wife from another and it's just all pretty it's jumbled up there <laughs> and my uh, i i um, sorry i lived in the united states 15 years always in the northeast and and then I, I basically didn't delve into my past because I was a numbskull youngster just doing his thing. And then all of a sudden it I it came to light when I moved to Washington, D.C., that I had relatives who were from South Carolina in the name of my grandfather. And I got this call while I was I just moved to D.C. from New York. And this woman with a southern accent says, could I speak to Minter Dial? And she was looking for my grandfather, not me. I was named after him from South Carolina. And thanks to her, thanks to that call, I ended up digging in, going to Charleston, going to the library, finding out all about my family. And that was a, a 25 year journey. So goodness gracious. I know a little bit about South Carolina. I've never lived there, but I certainly now know a lot more than I did before.
1: Well, and I don't wanna let this uh, conversation go by. I don't know if you plan on mentioning it later on, but um, I, I definitely would love for you to just say a little bit about the film because um, I got to t- t- take a look at it, it just an extraordinary and extraordinary story. And I know we don't have time to go deep into it. Like you explained to me on our, on our call previously a little bit more about this, but just, just at least tell us about the film because I'd love for people to have access to it. It's a very fascinating story. And a lot of our listeners are right here in the state of South Carolina.
0: So in the context of you lead and this whole conversation, actually it's totally relevant. So because you, you kind of need to know, I mean, the whole thing about you lead is about knowing who you are. And so originally I didn't connect that dot, right, Patrick? It was just sort of, I was doing my film thing, but then little by little, I really came to realize it. So I was named after my grandfather, who was uh, an officer in the United States Navy, a graduate of the Annapolis Naval Academy. And he goes off captain of a ship in the Philippine Islands, gets captured, is a prisoner for three years and is killed in the worst of conditions on what's called a hell ship. He wasn't alone. There were something like 14,000 Americans who were killed in these hell ships. And, and through the study of my grandfather, I came to know not only about him, not only actually about myself, but I really came to know who my father was and, and in, in, in the creation of identities and who we are, that relationship, boy to father, is so important. I mean, there's so many relationships that are important, but big by goodness, there's a, there's a structural concept there that you have to grow into. And at all of a sudden, at the age of 70, my father and I get to meet at a different level and completely changed our relationships and our understanding of one another. So, the film is called The Last Ring Home. It's been on PBS for the last five years. It's available on YouTube and, and iTunes. And it's a story of love, courage, and honor. It's completely untrendy, it's total serendipity. It's a, a story that hopefully can touch other people than just me and my family because it's about trying to understand who we are and what's important in life.
1: Mm. You know, I, I'll let you talk about how that relates to the book, but I can certainly see how that relates to leadership. And we forget those things sometimes. It, leadership is about who we are as people. And I love the, the subtitle of the, of the book, in fact, is how being yourself makes you a better leader. But let me, let me start with this, just to pick your brain a little bit. Um, the word authenticity is used a lot. And <clears throat> we've all heard, you know, be an authentic leader. People love authentic leaders. And I think most people, it's an, it's one of those buzzwords that if we're not careful, it just loses its meaning because what does that mean? And how do you be authentic? Isn't, isn't the effort of being authentic inauthentic? Like, like, like people get confused by it. So I think I get it. I have a construct for it. In fact, one of my favorite leadership definitions comes from Kevin Cashman. Uh, who's the author of one of my favorite books on leadership called leadership from the inside out. And he wants to find leadership as authentic self-expression that creates value. And so he said, it's a three legged stool. It's got to be authentic because people see through the superficial. It has to get expressed or else, you know, who, who, who will ever know about it and it has to create value. So that authentic piece that you talk about in the book, I mean, it's the construct of your book is about being authentic how Define authentic, and how does a leader think about intentionally being authentic, in your view? So I know I'm it's a big question, going, but I'm talk going, through
0: it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to start start from the other way around, actually, because in the end of the day, I think for someone who wants to be authentic, the first thing is to almost call your bluff, and and know that you don't know yourself, and therefore can never be fully authentic. Mm. That that perp, that sense of self. Is, is such an important one that the idea of self-awareness, who am I actually? How important is what I'm doing or how I am being? And it's so easy to get pushed off your North Star by choices that we have. We you know in your introduction, you were talking about how with charities, the digital tools and everything. Well, it may be that they cannot afford it, but also there's so many out there,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and knowing what to choose, and and so when you are trying to understand yourself, there are a lot of crazy signals, and it's hard to really, pe- pe- you know, piece them together. When you're younger, you you tend to say, "Well, you know, I'll put that aside because I got to do what I got to do," and then but you carry that with you into your later life, and it's hard to undo. I give you a little um, analogy. Reading. Reading is important, right? Well, you know, it was was Truman or someone like that said, uh, not all readers are leaders, but all leaders read. Mm -hmm. And then with regard to reading, so many people continue to read by verbalizing in their brain the words that are on the page. And why do we do that? Well, we do that because that's how we learn as kids to read. So we kind of, I mean, if you really want to read, You don't need to do the words in your head, sort of story. So it's about deprogramming that thing. And then, with regard to authenticity, we have to deprogram so many of these codes Mm -hmm. and carry ons that we're we're giving out. You should do this. You know what? Engineers are really important. Or, you know, you need to go to that law school because, you know, it'd be great to have a title behind LLB behind your name. And that'll make you important. That'll guarantee you a job. And you're like, you end up doing all that, a lot of that stuff but you don't feel at all fulfilled. And and as far as being authentic is concerned, you're not at all in touch with your deeper self. And I I add in that space, the rationalization, the idea of sounding intelligent, getting the numbers in, being performant doesn't really allow for the, the messy, mushy, emotional space that actually is required to get to know you. So that's, that's a a longer answer, but that's what I think is important about trying to get to that authenticity.
1: I, I, I wish that, that I, and many leaders could spend more time or would spend more time in that deep space that you're talking about. Here's one of the conversations I have sometimes with leaders is when I'm doing executive coaching, the idea for my coachees is I want to get better. I want to, I always want to grow. I always want to improve. I want to be a better leader. I want to get better at this and that and the other. And that means at some point I've got to change my behaviors. I either have to add new behaviors. I got to cut bad ones out. or I got to change them. And sometimes there's a fine line between behaving differently and being authentic. And I've talked with, I've talked with coaches. This has actually, I think, come up a number of times recently on these, on this show is I've talked to coaches who, who are, who are challenged with being someone they're not. And what's the difference between being someone I'm not, but changing my behavior in the way that my team needs me to. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you can be authentic and still change is the, is the point I think.
0: Oh, I agree with that. So I think the, the word that comes to my mind, Patrick, and of course this can be a little explosive, is the concept of political correctness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, but I'm, I know I shouldn't say that because it's not politically correct. It's that kind of dissension where what you're feeling is not aligned with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have those kind of breakdowns, well, you can look like you're playing the part, but the other person on the other side, they got the BS spray in their pocket, and they go whip it out right. and give you a good old whiff of that bullshit. So, that that that's the first idea mm-hmm. about trying to. Uh, there's a it's Robin Sharma who says align your video with your audio. Right. Then, then the other thing about the the changing component. Well, there's a there's something that is fundamental in, in you. And there's this idea of values, which we typically will do. We will work with companies or even a charity. What are your values? Well, our values are friendship, integrity, and you know, innovation or whatever. When it comes to human beings and ourselves, we kind of want to say yes to all 75 of them. <laughs> Doing the work of whittling down to the top three for you as an individual, no, no, I don't need to do that. Well, yes, you do. Mm -hmm. And not only do you want to get down to understanding what are your top three values, you need to then re or calibrate them so that they are ascribed some sort of recognizable behavior that says, this is how, what it stands for me. I'll take you my three values that I did the work on for me. And there's no, it, it was not by mistake, love, courage, and honor. Three values of my grandfather I was looking through them all and I and that I ended up needing to, I, I put those in the subtitle of the book because that's what I felt I was. And that was my way of connecting into my grandfather. Mm. and And so then afterwards, love, well, great. You could express many ways, love. What's your version of love? What's your version of courage or honor? So you need to do that and that's hard work. And that then becomes once you understand that and you've done it with a level of integrity and honesty, then that's immutable. Afterwards, your behaviors, well, that can surely change. I mean, if you, if you can then orient what you're working on, whether it's your bad things or the strengths you want to improve, if you can identify why you want to change them, in other words, crafting yourself to be the person you want to be, which is perhaps different from the person you have been, and that's fine, then you're going to be able to, and you're more motivated to, change yourself to get to be the person you want to be
1: Mm. so this personal side of leadership let me let me shift gears a little bit then to a related topic you you consult and you are an expert on and you've experienced the dynamics around brand leadership i could also say we, we could say brand leadership we could say just even corporate leadership, you know, cultural, you know, overall leadership of a a company or a movement or an organization. But then there's this personal leadership, which is what it comes down to. It's the heart of it. It's exactly all the things that you're saying right now. What are some practical ways in your experience where you've seen strong brand leadership intersect with personal leadership in a way that's ta- in a way that's tangible that you could point to and say this is how they intersect and this is how they're authentic.
0: All right. So I'm going to tell you a story, Patrick. I think that would be the most um, e- e- declaring way of it doing it. So one of the things we talk about, another one of those trendy words, is storytelling. And uh, all right, so you got to tell stories, make your brand come alive. So when you're the leader of the company, I I happened to, I had the chance to run the brand Redken, part of the L'Oreal group for Mm -hmm. nearly four years, based out of New York, 40 countries. We did roughly $300 million at the time. And and there was this amazing story behind the brand. And so I was charged with being the person at the induction ceremonies around the world whenever I traveled into countries to recount this story. And even if you're a great storyteller, you know, an actor extraordinaire, if you haven't connected into that story, something that's relevant to you at a deeper level, then you're going to fatigue yourself. You're going to bore yourself. So the work that there needs to is, you know, once you've identified who you are, then you need to link in. You need to tap into that story at some deeper personal level. So you can tell the, the corporate story but then why not add in some personal elements to it, why it's important to you? So in, in the case of running Redken, there were several things. For example, um, and I mean, I'm just I i just taking one of many that are top of my mind right now, but that's the nature of that personal serendipitous real talk. Instead of having this program, I didn't think I was going to tell you this, Patrick, but here's what goes. Paula Kent was the founder. So, Her Paula Kent, the Ken of Redken, comes from her name. And at the time, her husband, Jerry Redding, lastly got the red part. Although she was a redhead, but that's another story. She, we were in 40 countries. One of them was Japan. And um, it it was so important for her to be successful in Japan. So every three months, and I was following on, it was obviously a strategic initiative that was important for L'Oreal as well. I would go to Japan and I would try to figure it out. And here's the interesting thing. It was really important for her. She said, um, karmically, she was a Japanese person before she was an American actress. And for me, I was knowing that my grandfather was killed by the Japanese in the Second World War. Mm. So rather than sort of gloss over it, not politically correct or, or anything else, I tapped into this element and I would tell stories, not, a you know, it was inappropriate to talk about how the Japanese killed my grandfather in that corporate setting. But personally, I wanted to tap into it. So here's the thing I have own a pen. You can't see it on a podcast because it's audio, but I have a pen. I've had it for about 20 years. It's a Japanese pilot pen. And it's with this Japanese pilot pen that I wrote the book about my grandfather who was killed by a Japanese person. So This is an example of dialing in on a personal level with regard to your story. And if you, if you don't make that effort, and if you're not capable of opening up the kimono to use another wonderful expression, then it's going to be difficult for you to be gauged as authentic, much less, you know, if you haven't figured out who you are in the first place.
1: Uh, That, that makes me think of Brene Brown's work on, Mm. on vulnerability in, in leadership and, and that, um, that ability and willingness to let the people that you lead truly see who you truly are. Mm. Um, and you know, in a smart way and in an emotional intelligent kind of way, but, uh, I, I love
0: that. Um, and by the way, here's the thing about that challenge of finding that balance, mm-hmm. you know, the more you feel like you need to control it, message it, manage it, the the less likely it's going to come through and be real. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you bark at something, it's funny, or you laugh out loud. And I, I have another story, which which ta- taught me so much. And, you know, I goofed up many times, Patrick, in my life, but I was, I was doing a, a press launch. So we had... 60 of the most important press people in the, in the room and uh, and big dignitaries, famous people, including, you know, bosses and stuff. Anyway, for some reason, I was very wound up. I was so wound up at, at somehow something just clicked and I, I, I felt the need to cry. Oh, my God. What a wuss. How embarrassing can that be? <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. I'm just, I was So, I was so mortified. Oh, totally unprofessional. And and then little, as I was trying to get, I got worse and worse. And then all of a sudden, somebody started to clap and was trying to encourage me. It was around an emotional issue. And uh, and then I sort of, you know, let's say, got back into the plot, did the, finished it. And then at the end, I, I apologized again. And someone in the audience says, you don't need to apologize. And that was very kind. And then at the very end, I kind of expected everyone to just rush out. But not at all. A few people did because they were probably they didn't like my mojo or, or and had other things to do, right? You know, so don't take it personally. And then I had but I had a bunch of people, including the most famous person in the room, come up to me and say, Can I hug you? So the moral of that story was they didn't think any less of me just because I cried, which was more my story about me, for sure, because I was brought up on a rugby pitch. You don't cry, that's a wuss. And it was just extraordinary that learning was actually, by being weak, quote-unquote, by crying, I wasn't a lesser person. In fact, as far as they were concerned, for many of them, I was a much bigger person.
1: Mm. A richer person, a more authentic person, a real person with whom they can relate. And that's one of the things in leadership is people want to feel a sense of identity with the leader as well as they do the mission and the purpose. And that helps to create that. Uh, There's a lot of connecting themes here. When you talk about not the more you have to uh, proclaim it. (laughs) Uh, I, I think about that a lot. I feel like the more, and particularly now you mentioned political correctness. I feel like this is where the, the concept of virtue signaling is really dangerous for individuals and people, because like you said, it can become authentic. I feel like the more you have to keep saying, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, you might wanna pause and think about it. <laughs> or the more you have to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a person of high empathy. I I'm I, The more you have to say it, there's a chance that there's, it's the less you actually live it, or the more you say I'm self-aware or my people love me, or if you have to keep saying it and convincing people of it through your words, uh, there might be a problem.
0: Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Well, there's a, a wonderful song in, in Italian and, and the, the main sentence go parole, 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 which means words, words, words. Mm. Uh, what counts are the actions. And uh, yeah. of course, it's a nuance because there's nothing. I mean, words count. I mean, look, we're talking. Right. So these words count. Right. But, you know, it's much better to do and then say you did. But the, the real best part is when you do and uh-huh. others say you did. That's where the juice is good. But we in marketing land, we like to broadcast and we like to make it look good. And no wonder 70% of employees are disengaged at work and marketers are, are right up there or down there, whichever way you want to look at it, with secondhand car deal salesmen and politicians in not being trusted. Because the first thing we do when we have the label of of a brand or a corporate institution, we're full of shit. We're going to sell you, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge. Our product's always the best on the market. That's not necessarily true.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my son and I talk about that a lot. We'll see and we'll see ads on TV and everybody says we're the this is the number one car on the road. This is the most listened to you know, this is the number one TV station. And everyone says they're the number ones. Like what stats are you? you I mean, everyone it's easy to just say that. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. I, I get that. Hey, there's another concept in your book that you spend a great deal of time talking about, and I think this can relate to the nonprofit sector, uh, you spend a good time talking about customer centricity. And uh, look, customer centric is another one of those buzzwords that, that yeah. you know people feel like they gotta put it in their strategic plans because it, it makes the customer feel good, right? If we say that you're the center of our work and the center of our universe, everything's customer centric. I was uh, working with a nonprofit here in South Carolina for nonprofits, and here's a debate about this, but my perspective is the customers in the nonprofit world are the donors. A lot of people consider the customers to be the end users. You know, if, if, um, if I'm a homeless shelter, my customer is the person I'm sheltering. And there is a degree of that, and I get that. But the customer in the business sense is the person who buys from you. And the person who's buying from the homeless shelter are the donors on behalf of the beneficiaries. So the word we use in the nonprofit sector instead of customer centric is donor centric. Okay. And uh, we were talking about this and we were talking about the difference between being donor centric and donor focused. And I don't know if that's a nuance or a difference in your world and in the the corporate environment, but I would love to hear uh, from someone with your experience, what, how you would define customer centric and how, again, you go beyond the buzzwordiness of that into actual actual practice. What does it mean, and and how does a how does a company truly employ it, and what does it do?
0: All right, So I'm gonna. There's a multiple layers to that one. I'm gonna start with saying that uh, I read a study that said something along the lines of 55 percent of all C major top thousand companies have customer centric as one of their top values or strategic priorities. And so basically what it means is where everyone's trying to do whatever they can. And so it's completely uh, useless idea. I mean, of course the customer's king. I, and yet, I think that 95% of custom of companies do not understand being donor centric or customer centric. And and the reason why they don't feel that is that the customers don't feel that the, uh, the, the company's being customer centric. And more importantly, the employees know that they're not being customer centric. So, so the journey has to be. You've, of course, you have to make money, and the reason why customer centricity has come into play, which I think is an interesting point, is that there's been an upending up of the power structure. It's not completely reversed, but now the customer has many more a ways to talk, and two, many more ways to interact with a company, and so that is that's the reason why customer centricity has become all of a sudden the big to do. It's just a mechanical component almost. The challenge though is that really to become customer centric in today's world, we have so many more people in our teams that are interacting and making that brand come alive that the real thing has to be focused on the employee in order to get to that customer centricity. And it's once you've you've got that your employees singing from the same song sheet to use a cliche but that are all focused on being customer centric, then that's when you can create that true customer centricity. And here's the rub. You need to consider not only treating your employees in a way that is comparable to the way you want them to treat your employee, your customers. You need to configure your policies and practices to be aligned. And what does that mean? I'm gonna give you a very clear example. Communication it's a big deal right you know it's like you ask anybody in the army or the military services what's the most important thing to protect it's your line of communication mm. well i tend to think the same thing in business and so we talk about customer service being customer centric so here's the thing in our the way we want to describe that we are customer centric is that we are the type of company that gets back to every customer inquiry within 24 hours right you know that That's something that many companies will do. They might say only on social media or whatever, anyway. All right, that's great. Hey, Patrick, I'm really impressed. You've got 24-hour rule. That's fantastic. I'm I'm sure you therefore have the four-hour rule inside. Mm. What is the four-hour rule? That means that you understand that to get to the answer within 24 hours, you know that you might need to talk to at least three other people in order to get the information on time in a way that's reasonable, because you have to do this in a sustainable way. It can't be a sprint every single time mm. to get to that request. You need then therefore to tell everybody that when the social media manager, the the wonderful uh, you know, Carolyn, who's 22 years old, just out of college, because we just hired her as an intern, when she calls the senior doctor scientist or writes an email saying, I'd like to know what this acetone does in the product, because she unfortunately doesn't know anything about the acetone, but Dr. Dude does. And he says, Caroline who? But I have so many more, much more important things to do. So that four hour rule is I'd say a, an indicator of the type of thing you need to do internally in order to corroborate and make come alive that 24 hour rule externally. So there's this real important importance of aligning the way you are and who you are internally. With what you do, and you want to do externally to become customer centric. Uh,
1: that is really good, and reminds me of branding internally, public relations internally, um, you know, d- touch points and and appreciation, and all of those things internally. Starting with your own people and your own team. In fact, a lot of companies consider employees to be a customer set.
0: Yeah, oh, uh, totally. uh, I totally. I, I would tend to agree with that. And, and you know, there's, I, I talk about this in the book, and it's not my original idea. I thought I had it, but it's not true. I have to have a hat tip to Julie Cotino, who came up with the idea well before me. But what about this concept of you as the leader being the number one fan? Mm-hmm. Not just because you oh, got the yeah. CEO title, but you subscribe to and and therefore are prepared to. Take the brand tattoo test. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means that you, CEO, big swing you know what, are prepared, even if you don't like tattoos, to consider having a piece of the brand tattooed on some real estate on your body. Mm. You're all That's in. That swoosh. Yeah, you're all in. And that means that you and I know that we won't be sticking around at this job forever because, by the way, we die. All right, And before that, we retire. Before that, we might even leave to work for another company. And it's in full knowledge of those three things that you're still prepared to have a tattoo. That is when you really are talking about having a brand concept inside out.
1: Well, and it's another version of authenticity. Mm, yeah exactly I'm, uh, yeah i'm not just i'm not just you know promoting this for you and and uh, doing what i need to do as the ceo or any other divisional leader or any rank and file leader in the organization but i actually do embrace this and i live it uh
0: there's an expression you guys use in the states that hey, you have you have skin in the game yeah that's right
1: uh-huh. that's right uh and i spent a, a, a previous career with united way and United Way uh, rebranded a uh, number of years ago to the brand tagline "Live United," and there and the whole brand around this and the reason and it and it worked incredibly well. I, I think it um, all of the all of the trust metrics and everything showed that it it really had a lot. It resonated with people because they were smart in their brand language to say things like "I don't just wear the shirt; I live it." Uh, it was all about living united, not just talking united. And that's, that's really what I think every brand has to do. That's a great, that's a, the tattoo test is a good one. And I don't know in today's world where people, you know, go through how, how many tattoos would that be for you mentor in all, in all your, your body would be covered? No, uh, no, 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 no.
0: I, I, um, I, I think I would be, I don't own, I don't have any tattoos in my body, but I, there are two that I would tattoo my body on at least that I, I talk about it at home and at the office, both with equal strength and, mm. and fervor. One of them would be uh, my the company I ran, Redkin. Mm. And and I want to talk about that a minute, a minute more. And the other one is probably I'd have to have some part of Jerry Garcia on some part of my body or The Grateful Dead, um, because they legitimately, from a philosophical standpoint, uh, as well as the musical, the whole community thing, um, is, is me... But they they resonate at a deeper level. It's not just oh, a good time. It's not just great mm-hmm. music. Or as far as I'm concerned, it's it's what you what you stand for. And for me, at uh, this existential level, both Redkin and the Grateful Dead, both by the way, have some crossovers, but would be tattooed on my body.
1: Wow. And 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 probably love, courage, and honor somewhere, right? <laughs> that was, oh, yeah, That's, that, there, that's there's, true. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah. The personal but I never,
0: ranks. I never right, I never, right. But that, I, those were that's what it's if you will, and I'm gonna make that a wonderful way to jump into that. Uh, I wouldn't tattoo the 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 values. What I want to mm. do is tattoo something that's meaningful towards those values. Cause in the end of the day, just like when I crafted my North Star sentence, like what I want to be known for. It's every word was important, and and then what I want to think about is how I'm making that I'm living that that value. So I'm going to take a little jump on that when you you know love, courage, and honor. Mm-hmm. All right. So how do, how does that work? I'm now running this company called Redken. We're part of L'Oréal because you're worth it. All that good glamour, retouched girls that are so inauthentic because we know that's not what they really look like off camera you know once the you know once the the retoucher has gone through it there's just nothing to do with who they are so that that's a that was a whole issue but the love part's fun because in in our company Redkin, despite the fact that we belong to l'oreal which was not at all in this manner we had certain behaviors that were considered Redkinite behaviors so we were making our our culture come alive through some things. For example, we believed in having extended hugs. When I say extended hugs, you and I, Patrick, would hug, and it wouldn't be a tap, tap, tap hug. It would be chest to chest, seven seconds. I feel you. Hmm. Now, of course, in the context of Me Too, that's more complicated.
1: And coronavirus.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh, exactly, touche, so to speak. But anyway, the point was that we we felt that that was important because in our hug, your hearts are getting closer. And actually, there are studies that show when you hug like that in a meaningful manner, it turns out your heartbeats will start to synchronize. Just to, to tap all this off... In L'Oreal, we had uh, many titles that you had to have. We had one woman who was just extraordinary, a woman called Anne Mincy. Anybody who's ever worked at Redkin knows who Annie is. Annie, the daughter of a, of a pastor, she was given the title, basically, of VP of Business Development. Her unofficial title was doc- Director of Love. Mm-hmm. So the point here I'm getting to is that you don't have to have 100% overlap with what you're doing at work, but what's your story? How do you, how do you make that resonate at a deeper level? So whenever I would talk about the director of love, I'm thinking about my grandfather and my grandmother, who is an actress, by the way, as well, and, and the love that they had. And so it's just tapping into much more almost molecular stuff. That's totally personal, and it's my story. So the charge you have is to talk about that and then encourage others to find their link in. So that's when you tap into everyone's discretionary energy within the organization, and you start getting everyone to to jump out of bed, to want to do this because, by God, they're doing something that's more important than just pulling in money for the shareholder.
1: You just used a word, um, and I know we've talked about it offline too, that I think relates to all these things you're talking about and you use the word energy. Um, and, and when I think about, um, the, the leader, for example, being the number one champion, or number one, uh, fan of the brand, uh, there's an energy that's, that, that is exuded. When you talk about, um, a leader being their authentic selves, there's an energy that's exuded. When you talk about hugging, there's an energy exuded, one of the things I think that's hard for a lot of people to grasp, including me at times, to be honest with you, is when you look at these transformational iconic leaders, and I'm not going to name them, but we all know who they are. The ones we keep doing it, we talk about all the time, is these massive company CEOs. Um, your, your book, for example, let me see how I want to frame this question. Your book, for example, it doesn't have anything in it about the business model and the strategy and the expertise around find the financial nuances and decision-making. It's all about the people. It's all about the person, the person of the leader, the thing that we call the soft skills. Oftentimes I've talked about that a lot on this show, how I don't like that term because the, what everyone calls the soft skills, those to me are the skills that is leadership. <laughs> when you talk about empathy and you talk about, um, inspiring people and and empowering people and, uh, growing people and dealing with difficult people. And all of that is the people business. Um, and so, um, I I don't remember exactly where I was going with all this. was the word energy. energy. Yeah. Uh, That, that requires energy. When you think about culture shaping, uh, we talk about a leader's top job, you know, vision casting and culture shaping, well, both of those require energy. I'd, I'd love mm. for you to, as I know you have some, some thoughts and some other connections to that word. Talk about that a little mm.
0: bit. All right. Well, I, I actually, I'm going to put this right out. I think this is a survival idea. Mm. I think so many leaders are brought up on this idea that we've got to be the rah rah cheerleaders. And and we're rah, rah, rah. And yeah, we get the performance in. I get to go to the shareholders and tell them how great I am. And I get the bonus. I get the paycheck. And then all of a sudden I hit the fucking brick wall when I hit 60 years old. I don't know who I am. I'm totally burned out. I want to change everything. I've missed my life. Mm. And and you can talk yourself silly into the stuff you think you have energy for. Oh, I really like my job. Oh, What do you do? I sell widgets. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, we have the best widgets, you know, it's really interesting to make them. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and we're really successful. We're growing double the digit, uh, double the pace of the industry. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Well, that's great. So we have these intellectual exercises. We can attach importance to these things, but they are just not related to who you are. So this is a survival instinct. We need to get more close to who we are because then we're going to be understanding what really motivates us and that drives us the energy. So we got to do all this stuff where we have so many choices, so many activities to do. Well, how are we going to, what reservoir are we going to generate? So you could end up being the rah-rah leader, if you will, to the extent that you have tapped into what's important to you at a personal level. You're being authentic to yourself, only you looking in the mirror. You don't need anyone else to tell you that you're being authentic. You know you are, or at least the the most authentic version of you that can be. And that is what's going to help you generate the energy to drive you to get through all the molasses, the lethargy, the infighting, the the bad news, the, the political decisions that go against you? Because that's life. So life is full of bad news and full of puddles that we have to walk through or run through. So how do you drive that? So if you can model that behavior, which includes accepting and showing your weaknesses, then you can allow your team to follow on and have that same kind of and give them the time to understand themselves, and and to understand that it's okay not to be okay. And and once you do that, you sort of level set the foundations are so much stronger, and people are going to know why they're doing what they're doing. They still know there's lots of shit, and we got. And people have to sometimes get fired. That that also is part of it. There's ways to do that with empathy, but once you can get everybody understand how they're contributing to doing something more important. That's making the world a better place. Well, then you are little by little going to. That's how you generate energy. You give them that link. You help them get to that link, and then they will auto generate and be autonomous in the creation of energy.
1: Boy, uh, that's that's some of the best stuff you've said in the whole conversation. To me, resonates with me. It's affirming uh, for a lot of what I coach my leaders on as well. And. You know, uh, another thing, another concept we've talked about on the program uh, before is self-determination theory, which really says that the people in, in these organizations want three things. They want some sense of autonomy, which means I've got some control over how my job gets done. They want a sense of competence or mastery. People feel people feel people are engaged when they know they're good at what they do and they're continuing to grow and they want a sense of relatedness relatedness to the leader and relatedness to the mission. In other words, a sense of purpose that what I'm doing, there's a bigger, there's a bigger good a greater good that I'm serving. A couple of things came to mind as you were talking. Um, one of the questions that we ask sometimes when we're doing three sixties, if we do the interview version of it is we'll ask a stakeholder of an executive, what, what in your mind uh, gets this leader up? You know, what, what, what gets their mojo gone? What's happening when this leader is like on fire and their best, most authentic selves. And you'll hear things like, Oh, when they're, when they're in front of a crowd, they light it up, you know, or when you give them a difficult project to analyze, man, they just light up. Then the next question we ask is, well, what are the kinds of things that bring your leader down? What, what are the things that will, will decrease energy in your leader? And you'll hear things like, well, if there, if there's not consensus, it drives them. It really brings them down. Or if there's a it, one single loss of a funding source will really bring, you know, uh, will really bring her down. And that's getting at this sense of energy. And then what we do with the with the leader is we ask them, would they be able to answer those same questions about their team? How much do they know about the people that they lead and their own motivations? Because which leads me to the second thing that came to mind. I'm a believer that motivation comes from inside, not from some external great leader that motivates you. I think leaders inspire, um, but the mo- but to me, and you use the connecting the dots and aligning the you know people's uh, energies with the work that needs to be done, to me that is the, the, the essence of leadership is creating a path or an environment where people's own motivations that make them good at what they do, connect to and serve the mission you're trying to get served and it's that connection of people's existing motivations rather than constantly trying to motivate people to do things that is really the art of leadership what What are your thoughts on that
0: so i'm going to do a little pushback okay um just for for juiciness good so this notion of we we don't get motivated by externally i think unfortunately a lot of people think they're motivated by that. Right. So you get to this rationalization idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it because you know I get the big car, I get the bonus paycheck, I get. I, there's there, there's some element of I abdicate responsibility. I just assume be told what I need to do. That, that there are that's not a motivation principle, but it's a philosophy of life. And there are many people who would just rather hunker down and just be told what to do and but don't they don't
1: those people get some sense there's a reason that's what they want though there's a reason that's their the construct they want the the fulfillment in it for example for them would be uh, i like accomplishing tasks that need to be done i like a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment if you tell me what to do i love completing something i love being a finisher for example aren't there some aren't there some deeper motivation and the person may not even realize what it is that's motivating them
0: well this is the problem right Because if you don't know why, all right, so in this case, I'm telling you to finish this widget, Patrick. Mm -hmm. So, oh, I'm going to finish this widget. Oh, I'm accomplished it. I'm I'm excited. But it's not your widget. It wasn't your desire. Mm -hmm. You don't have the agency to do that. You're just accomplishing what someone else has told you to do. And here's the thing. like I have this scale of meaningfulness. And as a leader, it's important not to try to be Totally dogmatic, or I call it the the um, dictatorship of, of of tyranny. Sorry, of of purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't tie everything into saving the world right. from hunger. All right, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Right, go do a freaking fax machine and do and do that for me, whatever you know. Copy. So the 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 in the scale of meaningfulness, there are there are much smaller but yet interestingly meaningful things you can be asking. So for example, having fun, having fun, laughing isn't deep, meaningful purpose led stuff, but at least it's a little moment of joy that you share with others. And that can be fun. Being on a winning team is actually a meaningful thing. Cause if you're on a losing team and you go out of business, it's pretty unmeaningful. So there it's not missionary in the sense of making the world a better place, right. necessarily. Right. You're making me happy for 20 minutes. That's a fleeting sense of joy as I laugh. Ha, ha we have this hysterical moment. But by the way, that's going to connect us, but that's another point. Mm-hmm. But moments of fun are a lighter version of meaningfulness. Making the world a better place and creating a catheter that's going to save people's lives. That's a little bit more meaningful than you, Patrick, and me laughing right? Mm -hmm. So there's a scale of meaningfulness. So it's not about always being on the deep end, but knowing how to bring down meaningfulness down the scales such that when you tell this person to make the widget, understand what's meaningful about that. Hey, listen, Patrick, I really need you to do this widget for me. Here's why. This piece is going to be in a ship that will be holding the Queen Elizabeth. She's going to be doing her last big voyage, and this widget's going to be part of that. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, it's not just executing this, but I'm feeling important. I'm contributing to something that's bigger than me, and that I think that's the the link there between maybe just doing what others would. But if you don't know what's important to you, well, then that's the issue. And at whatever level you are, if you haven't figured out who you are. You can't lead yourself and the chances of you becoming the person you want to be are next to nothing because you haven't given yourself a target. Not that it's a destination, but you need to define who you want to be at every level. And once you do that, everything you do is so much easier to say, no, nuh-uh. nice to have, or I'd love to do that, but not going to be good for me. It's not part of what I'm all about personally and professionally and anyone, every level, is a leader of themselves. And that's the principle I'm trying to drive down. So the first person who has to do it is the top. If you're the top, this is really the thing you have to do. And once you know how to do it, then you can talk it through. And by the way, talk about how you screwed up and it didn't wasn't mm-hmm. an easy overnight story. And, I, screw, I, you know, I, and I, I thought that was it, but then I really didn't know myself. By the way, you're never always gonna know your whole self. So then who can you have in your circle Who's going to provide you the tough love? Do you accept people who say, "Mentor, you're full of shit"? I've mm-hmm. noticed i I send a lot of bad words, Patrick. I hope that's okay.
1: Uh, hey, it's it's you saying them.
0: <laughs> a, lot li- exactly. a lot
1: of our <laughs> listeners are loving it, going, "Finally, I eh, like someone.
0: Oh no, someone I, don't, I don't Real, <laughs> oh, but um, yeah. So y- you have to have in your circle, including in your team at the company, but actually outside with your friends, call you out. When you yeah. mentor, that's not right, man. Right. You're not like that. You're pretending to be that person. Mm-hmm. Or you, that nice try, but you ain't. Yep, And that kind of a thing. So then you can, of course, correct. Because we we have this r- ridiculous tendency to want to rationalize everything. Like I'm always right. Or I'm always better. I'm certainly always better than I think I am. I, I'll tell you a little survey I did, which is on empathy. Because uh, I'm really interested in this topic of empathy. and And I asked this question. I've done it. I don't know. Several, maybe ten thousand people, and of the ten thousand people that I've answered, I clearly have a specific pool that's not representative, because seventy-three percent of them have an above-average level of empathy. So I must only be asking people that have empathy. I, I clearly am not finding the people that don't have average or below empathy. So seventy-three percent say that they have above-average level of empathy. Mm-hmm. Then there's another 18% that say they have an average level. And then there's this little minute group that for some reason decided to say, well, I'm a below average. So I'm thinking, I didn't do maths at at university, but I'm thinking that doesn't work out from the proper distribution. So this idea that we always think we're better than we are. Mm The ego gets on top of that, the image building, and certainly in certain cultures, we're promoting this other image that we're trying to do. Like, I'm always the best, got to get up, got to be the best. But hey, actually, sometimes we're not that well, and leaders ought to be able to dial into their own emotions, understand that some days their energies are not where they want to be even if they're supposed to be. At least that's the way it was prescribed at business school and how my father was. But I think it's more interesting to actually understand that you too cannot feel so well, especially in these, I was going to use another bad word, bad days, we, where everybody is under stress. And this is a challenging time psychologically, physically, I mean, existentially. For so many people, so it's okay if you, even if you're the CEO, some big swinging, you know, type of CEO, even you should have the permission to not feel so great. And if you can then have the courage to share that and show that with the rest of the team, by goodness, you're going to dial in some authenticity or at least some real connections.
1: Mm, really good, and I I agree with that entire construct around m- motivation. One of the one of the ways I put it, you mentioned the the widget. Making, for example, um, we talk, we talk a lot about vision casting and when, when a leader hears vision casting, they're often thinking about that big vision, you know, to, to improve the lives of all people in our community, et cetera, et cetera. But vision casting happens in tiny little moments that if we change this spreadsheet to turn it into a bar graph, the questions at our board meeting will probably, uh, be more clear, more, you know, it's, it's that vision casting of if this, then this, Uh, little tiny theories of change, (laughs) the strategic bets that say this will lead to this. So I think it's that leader showing people constantly what this action will lead to. And again, the why, which I, which I think is around the vision, um, running out of time. I got a couple more questions for you. I'd love to just hear, there's a phrase in your book that you call a new form of leadership. How would you summarize that? What do you mean by a new form of leadership?
0: so my story on this one is i i call it the tie to tie die. and and so and, and bottom line is they're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. there are some things in leadership that have always been good and mm-hmm. there's some constructs and policies that are appropriate so it's not about just jettisoning everything yeah. but it's it's moving from the tie Version, the guy or the person who wears a tie to work that, of course, we're not doing that anymore, but it's its an allegory. The tie is I'm going to come in and I'm going to let what's ever happening at home. I've had a fight with my wife. I slept badly. And um, and there's a traffic jam that pissed me off. i The minute I walk through the hall into the proverbial office, I have my tie on. I'm in it. <s_> I'm switched on. Mm-hmm. I got this meeting, da 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 Efficiencies, get the business in, go get the client. And, and then I go home. And in my case, I would go home and I often took off not only my tie, but I took off my shirt and I changed it for a tie-dye. And so I'd go out and I'd wig out and go dance for five hours, having spent a day with bankers, at my investment bank, Donaldson, Lofkin, and Jenrette, and I'd wig out and listen to Grateful Dead for five hours, dance, sweat, look like a you know, a numbskull, feel like a numbskull, be one of the gang, obviously doing other things for fun, and the next morning, shit, shower, and shave, back to the office, put on the tie, and none of that should be part of this. But the issue is I, I'm, I'm actually taking away from my energy and my passions when I go to the office and don the tie. So the new form of leadership is one that for whatever your equivalent tie and tie dye, there should be some much stronger overlap. And here's the the story that goes with this is that in my book, I talk a lot about the fact that I'm a deadhead. So in the United States, you all know what that means. Over mm-hmm. here, people oh, yeah. are like, it's, it's strange. Mm-hmm. But I, as I, I saw them maybe 200 times or so so I'm, I'm i'm i consider myself a bona fide deadhead that's
1: i think and, that qualifies yeah
0: and and i ran this company redkin so really image based l'oreal very you know it's a specific type of culture nothing to do with the grateful dead i mean goodness gracious you know could hardly be further away Paris chic and san francisco hippie no not much overlap <laughs> but for me when i ran redkin there was a total overlap, and uh, the, the the notion of being employee centric, starting with the the core group, then filtering it out with the family, then with the roadies, and then with the, the the people, the tapers, and then your hardcore fans that come to every show, and then the fans that come to lots of shows, and so you have this inside out model where the Grateful Dead operated like that. And Redken, despite being part of L'Oreal, was in the same way. We had our core group. We were tattooable individuals in the L'Oreal culture, which meant that we would change companies. You know, you get promoted out and up, or sometimes Mm. (laughs) poorly ideas, but we would have it within us. And then we had our core team inside, but then we had our Redken performing artists who are independent contractors. We had our distributors who were independent sellers of our company, selling into hairdressing owners, salon owners, who were then giving it to hairdressers who rented chairs or worked in the salons, who then colored the hair and sold on to customers. So we had this model which was really having integrity, very loyalty-based. Let's say when you go to a dead show, you all know that the people who've been, who been go to a dead show Well, they've probably been to another Dead show before. In other words, you know, they're a fan. So there's this loyalty first, and they had a whole methodology. And I'd encourage anyone to read the Marketing Lessons of Grateful Dead by David Meerman Scott, if they want to get a digger, bigger, deep dive into that. And at Redken, we had the largest, biggest community event in the industry in the world, yet we were the fifth largest company in the world at the time. And over 90% of the people who went to our symposium in January, had already been to one before. What did that mean? Is that we had this loyalty and we made mm. sure most loyal customers came first. We just didn't do lip service to that. We we really paid attention to having that concentrate. So Redken and the Grateful Dead for me are one and the same. And here's the fun part, Patrick, I'll finish on this. I know it's a long rant. I was you know, going to work, putting on the tie. And then one day I have a chat with the guy who runs the US business for Redken so my largest market, and we go out for a beer. And Patrick, his name, same, says to me, oh, I'm gonna go see a show tonight. Really? Me too. Deadhead. So, and I think that there's no mistake. There was no, that's not by mistake. There's that sort of element of congruency that people with the same kind of value sets were gonna find each other, even though we were working in the L'Oreal world. And Pat and I are still fast, thick friends Um, 20 years after I left.
1: That's good. Boy, we could get in a whole area on shared affinity and those kinds of things. Um, This is a truly fascinating uh, mentor. I I really do appreciate it. I have a couple more questions for you that I ask all of my guests. And one is just, I'm I'm always curious as to maybe one or two leader, uh, one or two people in your life, maybe your early life or career that you would say probably had a big impact in shaping your current view of leadership.
0: There's there's one person that stands out above them all for me. And unfortunately he's passed, but he was my housemaster at my the school, my high school I went to. I went to a boarding school in England called Eton. And his name was John peak And he was just such a human being. He was a phenomenal teacher. So when you talk about competency, oh not only did he know his stuff he made history come alive. And so when we would do a battle, he would drag us all out in Wellington boots on the back end of playing fields and we'd have to act out the battles. And he would be under the rain with umbrella, I could just remember him screaming at us, no, left to right, you know, God, and he, he didn't leave anything uh, on the field. It was, it was, I mean, off the field, he was just all in. And he was my confidant I, when I talked to him I felt like he, I he had I had all his ear all his attention mm. he was my my booster when I was down and and he, he was just such a a real person he would scream at you so he gave tough love but he would laugh with you he was so happy to and you know discreetly show you what wine is as a 16 year old and and so many things of, of life I've kept with 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 in that thought and i'm still delighted to say that i'm in touch with his wife and his children so to keep the bonds going because it wasn't just a passing thing it was a big deal for me and so often i would say this patrick we have teachers in our life we need to go back to them and thank them mm-hmm. my goodness mm-hmm. what a thankless job it is i mean some are don't need to be thanked but there are some others that have touched you write them a letter get out a pen and paper and write them a letter don't just Write them an email, flip it easy, or text them. Actually, I mean, that's fine. You know, if you if you can't do anything else, show some gratitude. But write a thank you letter to some of the teacher in your life that was done something important for you and let them know what they did for you.
1: That's that's such good advice. And you know what I've found is that the teachers that had an impact on me, and I, you know, I can name them just like anybody else can, they didn't just have an impact on me. It wasn't that I was, you know, it what they had an impact on everybody. These are oh, the completely. teachers that everybody says, Oh yeah, they had a great, like they went above and beyond. They went, they, they transcended, you know, the instructional design teaching of, of a curriculum. They transcended that into the leadership realm. And I think that's an extraordinary gift and something to think about in the corporate world. When you, again, back to connecting with your people in a way Um, You mentioned that, that, you know, he, 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 you had his full ear and there are, I can think of, of people in my life and, and even today where when you, when I'm talking with them, I am the most important thing going on in their life right now. Like they're all in, they're not distracted. They're not, they truly, I truly feel like they really genuinely care about what I'm saying. And uh, what a gift. I love that example because uh, the stories that went with it were so visual. Uh, Last question for you, mentor. If you had, uh, you know, that 15 second soundbite to say, this is the mentor dial rule of leadership or the number one concept or precept that all leaders should, should focus on. What is that for you?
0: Well, having gone our journey here, I I feel like there's so many areas, but I would say that take the time to find out who you are. We we have this exceptional opportunity where we don't have to all do the commute so often. So we've got this gift of extra time. Yes, there are other things we have to take care of, like homeschool and other things, but take the time to do some homework mm. on yourself to understand who you are. Listen to yourself, dial into your emotions, allow them to come out, Try to connect the dots. Be open to what's coming to you. And once you get more in touch with yourself, then craft a North Star mission of who you want to be and make that a very clear, concise, and owned mission for yourself. And then little by little, that'll come alive. And and that will make you, I think, a better leader for you, for your family, friends, and at work
1: how beautiful that is and and listen that's not self-centeredness selfishness egotistical time to study yourself and to get to know yourself it it is meaningful time that will impact those that you lead and it'll impact your your own life as well so i i could not have framed that better mentor thanks so much uh for this generosity of thought and time with us um, folks get the get the book it's out now it's launched here in the United States now it's called You Lead you can get it on Amazon and other sources it's how being yourself makes you a better leader and you just heard from one of the world's experts on connecting a personal brand to company brand and I just boy we could dig in longer Mentor thanks so much folks uh, have a great rest of your week and lead on